Our scripture reference for today is short, early in the book of God's Word, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. We're being confronted by an issue that cannot help but be foremost in our minds as a result of the events which have taken place at the end of this past week. It is an issue concerning which people are protesting and fighting for all around the world. That issue is the value of human life. This past week, instead of learning the three R's, I guess there's more than that nowadays, but instead of learning the three R's, school classes have spent their time watching TV and listening to the radio, while those who work where they are able to watch TV and listen to the radio have had their sets on all the time. Attention has been focused so much on the war in the Mideast that reports have said there has never been a time when more people were watching one program or one person more than the number who were watching the president when he addressed the nation on Wednesday night. I got a letter from my friend, a friend of mine, this past week. And in that letter, my friend made this statement. He didn't think there was anything worth fighting for in the Mideast. I went to college with John, the writer of that letter, and I'm sure that the atmosphere of our college did much to shape his views in that direction. But I remember a different education at college that colors my view of this war. I remember getting to school, and uh, there was a a next-door neighbor who lived in the dorm room next door, and this uh, neighbor moved out and decided that the college was not the place to be. And so the room was vacant, and my roommate and I waited and waited, and they finally found two people to go in next to us, and it turned out to be two foreign students, two Arab students. We were somewhat reserved in our reaction to them never having lived next to Arabs before and not knowing what they would think of us. Fahad, one of the two, turned out to be a very kind, considerate, and friendly neighbor. We continued our friendship through the next four years. When I first heard of Kuwait, all I knew was that it was somewhere in the Mideast. It has that kind of name. But I learned more and more about that country and what it was like to live there because Fahad was a Kuwaiti. There then, coming from the same educational background, you have two different viewpoints. One whose view says that there is nothing worth fighting for in the Mideast, and indeed, that he would not even allow his dog to die for anything in the Mideast. The other whose view says that there is a friend in the Mideast, particularly in Kuwait, and because he is a friend, he is worth fighting for. Now, if that's the way these two viewpoints break down, that one person has a friend in occupied territory and the other person doesn't, so friendship then, if you follow my line of reasoning, friendship with persecuted people, or lack of such friendship, determines whether or not their lives are worth defending. 
In other words, friends are worth fighting for, enemies are not worth fighting for. Such viewpoints would be very slim defenses against all kinds of atrocities committed throughout the world. If it is right to determine another's right to live based on whether that individual whose life is in the balance has friends who care, that moral ethic would allow the homeless, widows, orphans, and others without relatives and friends little protection against murder, any murderer, anywhere. Now, my college friend, John, is a Christian, and I am ashamed of his viewpoint, even if he was joking. What we need to do is to look at Scripture to find out what God's view is concerning the value of human life. This is not an area, this is not a subject that only becomes important in weeks like this week when the United States is at war. It is not a viewpoint what God thinks of human life. It is not a viewpoint that we ourselves can choose to be ignorant on because the value of human life is fundamental to our view of everything around us. <clears throat> and further, we are warned throughout Scripture that we, believers, have a responsibility to God based on what we do in protecting human life or what we fail to do in protecting human life so that it is crucial to understand exactly where God does stand on this issue of the value of human life. The place to begin, what better place to begin, of course, than the creation. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, as we have just read, God voices his decision to make man. And this is it again. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now this word spoken by God to indicate his decision to create man took place on the last day of creation, which of course was the sixth day, the day before God rested. And as we see all that God created man to rule over, in other words, the fish, the birds, and everything else that lives on the earth and the whole earth itself, we see that man was created very last in the scheme of things. As we go through this, um, let's understand it as it is written in our scripture. In other words, man is referring to all of us, male and female. And then this, this, the distinction is male and female, he, cre he created them. So don't think I'm uh, being sexist in any way when I refer to man, it includes all of us. So we see that God created man last. By virtue of what God said before he created man, we learn that man is distinct. Different not only in color or in shape or in ways of walking or talking. Different not only because of such cosmetic things, but in a fundamental way. Because God says about humans alone, and this is the reason that they were given the rule of, over everything else. He says this about humans alone. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. <coughs> So there from the beginning we see a distinction that is made between man and all other creatures because man bears the image and the likeness of God. And bearing God's image and likeness is not something 
that male or female can choose to accept or reject it is just something that comes with the territory. If you're human, you are a bearer of God's image and likeness. It's something that we have by very nature of the fact that we are human. In other words, we are different not because we accept it or reject it, but we are different because we were made different by God's choice and by his hand. Now, in looking at this account of creation, you might think to yourself, well, this was before the fall, right? This is in the Garden of Eden. This is when everything was perfect, rosy. So, bearing God's image then is something that God only gave to Adam and Eve, right? In the Garden of Eden. But this is not so, because where we read this about God's decision of, and action of creating man in his image and likeness, he is speaking about the species, not directing his words at the individual, first Adam and then Eve, let me make Adam and Eve in my image and likeness, let us make man in our likeness. Now Adam and Eve sinned, and the immediate consequence, of course, was their being cast out of the Garden of Eden. And God spoke the judgment that would come upon man and his descendants as a result of this sin. <clears throat> but even following their lives after the fall, man continued to be created in the image and likeness of God. Although definitely that image and likeness is tarnished as a result of the fall, as everything has been tarnished as a result of the fall. For instance, if you look outside and you see what it's doing, you realize that that's a result of the fall because as before uh, certain things happened in creation, God's method of watering was not by it coming down, but rather by it coming up. Anyhow, just a little sidelight there. So everything has been tarnished by the fall, so we have to understand that being made in God's image and likeness is one thing that has been. But we continue to be made in God's image and likeness. We see it today, and further proof comes from James chapter 3, verse 9, which says, With the same tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Now, you understand that when James wrote his words from the Lord, Adam and Eve were long since dead. Yet he says, men who have been made in God's likeness. The thought that we and all human beings are made in God's likeness and image is an impressive and awesome thought. Particularly when you consider the other options, such as the theory of evolution, which says that we're really not made in the image of God, but instead in the image of protoplasm, the one-celled organism, in the image of the tadpole and the sunfish, in the image of the jungle monkey, it is certainly more flattering to consider that we are made in the image of God. And it is certainly, perhaps, something we would more like to believe. Even when we meet people and know of people in the world who are definitely illustrating in their lives and actions the lower order of creatures. But if we accept this evolutionary theory with regard to human beings then what comes next is the devaluation of human life. That comes second nature. It is so easy when human life is approached from the viewpoint that human life has evolved. Because if man comes from animals, if you and I are descendants then of chimps, then human life can't really be all that valuable. 
And if evolution is a continuing process, then we're evolving too. And it is so easy, if that is really the case, that human beings are evolving and have evolved to where we are now, it is so easy to feel then that the lives of those who are young and normal, healthy and productive, have so much more value than the lives of those who are no longer productive. Those who are, instead of contributing to the resources of the world, are being drains on the resources of the world and drains on people around them. It is so easy if evolution is a continuing process to come to the conclusion that healthy and normal people have so much more value than those who are unhealthy and those who are abnormal. That the young who have lives of work ahead of them have so much more value than the elderly who are all worked out. Whatever the truth may be behind it, when the principle of survival of the fittest becomes a policy or determining factor, a guiding factor for determining the value of human life, we're in deep trouble. We're saddened greatly by the thought and the reality of lives lost in the Mideast as a result of the war. But did you realize that people, older people, in Denmark are afraid to go to their doctors for the same reason that the people of Israel have been afraid this past week every time the air raid sirens went off. The elderly, many of the elderly in Denmark are afraid to go to the doctor because it is legal in that country to put humans to sleep, just like you put dogs to sleep. And the elderly realize the hard facts and the real happenings. Through these, they realize that their lives in the eyes of those, many of those around them are not worth anything anymore because they are no longer just that. They are no longer the fittest. <clears throat> We're living in an age in which we think that we are so much advanced in times past. And yet we are living in an age which is so very little different than times past. We consider ourselves civilized. And we look back at the Roman civilization and we would say as well, yes, they were certainly a civilized nation, a civilized people. But we think with horror about their gladiators and arena sports in which they watched people for sport being killed by other people and being eaten alive by animals. They too in pra practiced infanticide, killing infants who were not to their liking, leaving them outside on the junk piles to die. And we have advanced no farther than that today. We, too, kill children that are sickly. We, too, get rid of girls because we want boys. All you have to do is look in the news, and you find, for instance, that there are clinics in various parts of the country, probably some quite close to us, that are offering methods of determining whether that unborn child is a boy or a girl. What reason could you have for wanting to know that? Well, they have figured out the reason that people have for wanting to know that. Our disregard for human life is no different than theirs was. The only difference is we kill our children sooner because we are more technologically advanced. Many of the same generation that was so vocal in protesting the loss of human life on the fields of Vietnam are willing and even eager to allow lives to be ended without fuss, without protest in medical facilities. Aside from abortion, there have been at least two other noticeable cases which have tried the value of human life in our country. 
over the past several months and years. One is the case of Karen Ann Quinlan. And then there is also, as well, the lady who used the doctor's invention, the killing machine in Michigan. Now, at least we still have enough regard as a nation for human life that we sit up and take notice when it is at stake. At least such cases can still make the news, can still make people to pay attention. But at, their, at the same time, as we see protests going on around our country, at medical facilities where there is experimentation, for instance, testing of drugs, we see that there are many people who get more exercised about the death and killing of animals than they do about the killing of humans. That should appall us. With that fundamental principle guiding our understanding on the value of human life, that man is made in the image and likeness of God, we must recognize another statement that is made by that verse. There's no differentiation either here in Genesis or elsewhere throughout Scripture. Take that for a blanket statement, but then search, if you will. There is no differentiation here or elsewhere in Scripture that some human life is worth more than others. Instead, what we find is that those who have been blessed with wisdom and understanding, in other words, as wisdom and understanding are described in Proverbs, the fear of God and the departing from evil, we see that those who believe in and follow the Lord are told to aggressively defend the defenseless. If you look at the scripture verses at the bottom of uh, your order of worship in the bulletin, you will find precisely that being said in those verses. And we as believers are being told to defend the defenseless, not because the defenseless are worth more than those who are able to protect themselves, because they are worth all, everyone, same value in God's eyes. The defenseless are as valuable to God as those such as us, who were able to defend themselves. But the reason for God's continued warnings and counsel for believers to watch out for the defenseless is because they are just that, defenseless, unable to watch out for themselves, unable to defend their own lives, unable to protect themselves. And because of this, and because of the fact that their value in God's eyes is equal, he has called on believers to watch out for them because they are worth just as much as the strong and the powerful are worth. At some point now or in the near future, we are getting set to hear of the beginning of a ground war between the Allied forces and the Iraqis. We are all fearing the increased loss of human lives when the war is no longer merely for our people in air war. We would dread the day, should it come, when over 4,000 of our people were killed in one 24-hour period. If you think of it and add it up, in one week at that rate, the losses would have mounted to some 30,000, around 30,000. In two weeks, we would have lost more than we lost in the entire Vietnam War. Such a thing would be numbing, chilling to the greatest degree. But now we can accept a killing at such a, such a rate which continues to go on in our country. 
We should be unable to accept that, whether it is occurring in a war or whether it is occurring through abortion, as it is going on in our country now. How can we accept it without a horrified outcry, hardly even oftentimes without flinching? For more than 4,000 children are being killed by abortion in America, 4,400 each day. Some 407,316 Americans died because of World War II, the deadliest war for Americans to date. Yet we go on about our business as our country has killed over 26 million infants since abortion was legalized in 1973. Those statistics, how can you deal with numbers that great? I don't know. My father, in working for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, was an international was at a conference of International Fellowship of Evangelical Students in Europe in the late 40s. He was a staff worker for a cabin of German students, and all of the men in his in his cabin had served in Hitler's army. <clears throat> as they talk about what it meant to be Christians as Nazis. The same story continued to crop up in their conversation, these young Christian men. In order to become officers in the Nazi army, it was necessary for candidates to take dancing lessons to learn how to dance. So believing these young men, telling it after the fact, believing that dancing was wrong, these young men had sacrificed careers as officers in the Nazi army by refusing to take the first step which was required, which was taking dancing lessons. So while the Holocaust was going on, that was what these young German men thought that it meant to be Christians, refusing to take dancing lessons. Mind-boggling. From history, we know that this was the way many German Christians met the life and death issues of their day by ignoring the ultimate questions, by ignoring the demands of God set on higher priorities, and by focusing on such trivial things as dancing lessons, whether or not it was right to dance. Thank God, though, that there were many among the German people who were faithful Christians willing to sacrifice their lives in order to defend the lives of others. If we go back to those simple verses showing God's intention and his plan carried out in the creation of man, we see food for thought, which should guide and direct us throughout our lives in every area. When we see a homeless person on the street, when we read about someone or have someone in our family in the hospital who is ill, perhaps in a coma, We need to be guided by God's view of human life. So what we see is that man is made in God's image and carries his likeness. We aren't to understand that being made in his image and likeness are two different expressions. Instead, those words image and likeness are synonymous. In other words, they mean basically the same thing. They are both used here to add intensity to the thought that man is in God's image, a portrait, a copy of the Lord. Man in general and each individual male and female are bearers of a divine resemblance. 
What that resemblance involves is never specifically spelled out, though we have some definite ideas of what it includes, such as personality, the ability to know good and evil, a spiritual nature, and more. <coughs> and again, there is no indication whatsoever, anywhere, that there are any humans who do not bear that divine likeness. No matter how sinful, there is no indication that there are any who do not bear God's likeness. No evidence that the lame, the deaf, the retarded, or any such humans are left out, or have less of that resemblance than those who are perfect, the beautiful people. And there is also no evidence that at any time in life that, that likeness is not present, or any time in life that that likeness can be lost. So that we must know that whenever and wherever a man exists, in other words, man or woman, male and female, wherever there is one, there is God's likeness. And you go into many churches and you see this picture of Jesus Christ smiling down, you know, with a backlit, pretty picture, and you say, wow, isn't that nice? You know, maybe that's the way Jesus looked. But if you see another person, you're seeing a picture of God that is, is true to life, is that one that you see in many churches, one that's even more real. So we must know that from conception through eternity, every individual who is a human being bears God's image. And this image bearing is the reason that God is so strong in telling us of the sanctity of human life. This is the reason that he tells us that we must safeguard human life. As you can read in that verse at the bottom of your bulletin. Though he expressly gave authority to humans following the grounding of the ark after the flood. You might need to look that up. But you see a point where God said to Noah and to his family, it is okay for you to kill and to eat the flesh of animals. And prior to that time, everyone, everything was vegetarian, animals and humans. But at that point, God said to man, it's okay to eat the flesh of animals. But human life is different and distinct. Human life is above animal life because human life, why? Because human life bears God's image. When we understand that message clearly, then its implications hit home. If man's value comes from God's image, then those in a coma are no less human. Their lives no less sacred to God, even though they are completely unproductive according to our own personal evaluation. If human value comes from our spiritual resemblance to God, then the infant in the womb, whose life has life which is no less sacred than the life of a one-year-old, because as we have read earlier in Psalm 139, God knows us even in our mother's womb, as he is creating us. If human value comes from bearing God's image, then the misshapen, the crippled, the elderly, the mentally deficient, these have no less value than do the healthy because they continue to be human beings. And understand, I'm not putting any of these things together to state anything more than these are the people that are at risk in our community and throughout the world. These are the lives that are being taken, that are in danger of being taken, that we need to watch because these are the lives of those who are or will be defenseless. 
And for all of these, we must see the evaluation. Where does it come from? Can I stand up and say, well, I know this life is worth something, and that one isn't. No. What we must do is look to God's evaluation and make it ours rather than pretend to make ours his. For he will bring glory to himself from those lives, those people whose lives I wouldn't even count worth living. What value does God place on human life? Here is the evaluation that God puts on human life. He says, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's right there, the value that God places on human life. That he was willing to give up the thing that was most dear to him, his one and only Son, to go after the defenseless, us, all of us, because we are sinners. That he was willing to sacrifice the life of his only begotten Son in order to save human lives. That's how much human lives mean to God. That's the encouragement. Such value does he place upon us that he was willing to offer up his Son to die, the most precious one for you and for me. For those with AIDS, for those with spina bifida, for those dying of cancer or Alzheimer's disease. You see, when we come right down to it, the question is not whether you or I think that someone else's life is worth living or even is going to be worth living. Many people would not have thought my life was worth living, but I enjoy it quite much, thank you. The question we must ask is, what is God's view? We will find that many who are living lives that we do not even think worth living are nonetheless made in God's image because they are human. And therefore, they are as precious to God as we are. And being precious to Him, the protection of their lives is what? The protection of their lives is a sacred duty of us, His followers. A sacred duty a responsibility to protect the lives of the defenseless, to save those staggering away to death. There are many ways to be involved, many things that we can and should do to ensure that God's view in this, the most crucial question of our day, wins the day. It is something we each need to come to grips with personally, to consider what we are willing to do to honor God by protecting those who, like us, are made in his image. I don't want to give any easy answers. But just to make each of us, including myself, and I have made myself in this way, sufficiently uncomfortable with one question in conclusion. Are you satisfied with what you are doing to save and to protect human lives? Are you satisfied with what you are doing to save and protect human lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we look at your word, we understand every time that we look at it that it is something that, that, that has so much practical value, so much application in where we live, so much application in every aspect of our lives and of our thinking. We ask that your Holy Spirit would bring it to life within us. 
We thank you that you loved humans, that you loved man enough to give what was most precious to you, to sacrifice the life of your son for us. And so as we recognize his sacrifice for a hopeless people, his sacrifice for people lost in sin, without any hope, without Jesus Christ, we ask that we would take that example and make it the motto and the example for our lives. That even as Jesus Christ came to die for the defenseless, that we too would be willing to offer up all that we are and all that we have to save those whose lives are in peril. We ask that you would speak to each one of us. Speak to me. Speak to each of these others. Tell us what we can do. Show us what we can do. Make us brave to do it in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.